Welcome to The Writing Life, the podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Holly Ainley, Head of Programmes and Creative Engagement at the National Centre for Writing, here at Dragon Hall in Norwich, UNESCO City of Literature. In this episode of The Writing Life, we focus on the evolution of the noir genre in crime fiction. NCW Programme Officer Ellie speaks to American author Margot Dwyer, who stayed with us on a writing residency in autumn 2023 in our Dragon Hall cottage. Margot Dwyer is the author of several titles, including the brilliant mystery novel Scorched Grace, the inaugural title of Gillian Flynn Books. Dwyer is originally from Pennsylvania, now living in Northampton, Massachusetts, where she teaches popular fiction and literature with Emerson College. Ellie and Margot explore growth and changes in the noir genre, and how crime novels can be well-equipped for generating social commentary. They discuss how alienation is conveyed in crime fiction, as well as the representation of queer identities. So now, I'm delighted to hand over to Ellie in conversation with Margot Dwyer. Enjoy. Um, Hi, Margot. Thank you so much for joining me, Sarah. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much, Ellie. I'm absolutely thrilled to be part of this podcast, and I loved my time with the Writer Center. Yeah, yeah. Well, we loved we loved having you, and I thought actually we would start with um, a quote that I pulled out of your Norwich lecture that you gave last week in Dragon Hall. You said something that really stuck with me. You said noir is a dark heart of innovation and culture. Can you expand a bit more on that? Can you tell me what you meant? Absolutely. So when we think of of life, of course, so much of how we communicate with one another is through the form of storytelling. Even if you just asked me how my day was, I would probably share some kind of story or antidote. And we have so many different kinds of stories and forms of stories. Noir in particular is a very unique and yet fluid, sometimes elusive and hard to describe form of a story. But like a poem, you know it when you see it. And so noir has these hallmarks and touchstones of no way out and all characters are fallen or compromised and disorientation and destabilization. And I think it's so important. I think we keep gravitating towards noir from the earliest incarnations in post-war scenarios, tales of, of trauma and bleakness and decay and distrust of power structures up right up till today when we have eco-noir and various forms of noir that really just give us a, a moment in a way to say, how do we make it through these hard times? Mm-hmm. It is a dark heart of cultural innovation in the sense that it continually gives humans these forums to explore why we are drawn to to making bad decisions, humans facing the, the, the worst temptations, causality, you know, what drives us to these moments of desperation and where the triangles of trust keep shifting. And so you know, they're hard stories sometimes and... At the end, it, it ends in a bit of a bloodbath or a double cross or a triple cross. There is so much utility in just facing some of these contours of the, of the human experience. They're 
deeply existential. They're philosophically engaged. And, and I think that we, just as a human species, you know, we, we like to explore almost like a dream where you work out some of these mm. kind of unpredictable moments of life. And the storytelling form is just so captivating and seeing where we can push the terrain. And so I think time and time again, you see the, the little fingerprints of noir, whether it's pop culture, pulp stories, massive phenomenons such as, you know, Twin Peaks, for example, which has some roots in noir, weird noir, you know, strange and captivating dances with temporality. So time and time again, in unexpected ways and places, <laughs> we see the, the beautiful darkness of, of noir asking questions. You know, really, that's what it's all about is, is asking profound and generative questions. Yeah. Yeah. I love the notion of needing to ask a question in an abstract way and then <laughs> leaving someone else to maybe give an answer, most likely not give an answer, <laughs> which is what normally happens. Exactly. <laughs> oh, I love that. Um, I think as well, what you say there about the characters being kind of intrinsically imperfect, they, they almost have to be imperfect, particularly the protagonists for um, for crime to, to work. And, and I love it. You know, they're not the traditional hero. Most of the time, they're not even any kind of hero. They are, they're kind of just driving it. And then normally they have this um, rootedness in like a repressed inner turmoil, which yes. makes them so captivating and so really interesting. But I, what I was also thinking was that maybe that sort of almost accidentally makes them a really suitable vehicle for exploring queerness, which is yes. something that you do, of course, in, in Scorched Grace. Um, if we're kind of thinking about uh, queer theory being kind of historically shaped by like an anti-normative sensibility, and then queerness is is pushed to the edge and we've got the norms being the status quo and domination and all this kind of thing. But I've read the book and that's given me some of that space and some of these questions that you're talking about to, to think about this. So what I was curious was when you started writing the book, what was your initial reason for choosing crime and then also for choosing a queer protagonist? Did it feel natural? Absolutely. It felt almost inextricably linked in, in a sense of almost, you know, choreographing a particular piece of dance for a site specific. Mm -hmm. Um, experience, they felt so inextricable and also something that I, as a writer, wanted to write through my exploration. So <laughs> uh, having an anti-hero is certainly extremely flawed, an extremely complex protagonist within an anti-hero lineage of, of a sense in terms of my d deep, deep love and respect for the hard-boiled school. Mm -hmm. And, and also Noir, of course, where you have, you're following along these characters who just cannot get out of their own way and kind of create the chaos that they then run away from, but then run toward. So it's just something that I felt that I needed to explore in a mystery. So it does occupy the form of a whodunit, but with, it's really drenched in Noir signatures in that sense of all the characters are compromised. There's really a deep, deep sense of distrust that pervades the narrative cartography from every angle. There are double crosses, there are triple crosses, 
And there's just, you know, people grappling with a tremendous amount of loss and repression and how that pokes up out of the edges and kind of even makes some of the characters, you know, question the very roots of everything. But the queerness is probably the most important piece for me because I wanted to really expand, you know, the, the queer storytelling crime fiction experience away from easy categories of, you know, good or bad, you know, really just try to collapse that binary. And I think as a corrective in some regards, uh, perhaps some creators or even the audience itself, we wanted, we want characters that are people we can look up to people we can root for, we can strive for as a bit of a corrective for the really just uh, wretched homophobia of the past mm-hmm. where the queer character might be either the punchline or the corpse, you know, in Raymond Chandler's, you know, works and Oove to be called even intimated as being gay is the worst offense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So but for me, queerness deeply inhabiting crime fiction does mean that, you know, really to humanize, we have to make our characters quite nasty. <laughs> and that doesn't, you know, it doesn't negate uh, an intersectional expression. In fact, I believe that intersectional crime fiction in noir does give our characters spaces to be their nasty, flawed <laughs> selves. Because this world is hard. The world is a hard world. And to create narratives that feel substantial, surprising, mm-hmm. uh, perhaps even with authentic touch points that we can put ourselves in, even if we're not, you know, robbing banks and going on the run, like in <laughs> Elliot Chase's uh, Black Wings Has My Angel or uh, James M. Cain or Jim Thompson's The Killer Inside Me, you know, so these really wild crime stories with characters making terrible decisions through bloodlust or whatever it might be. But I think that queerness insists really on, you know, these full expressions of characterization. And even if that is is somewhat difficult, I think, again, there's a real utility in seeing characters in all of our, all of our shades (laughs) and it, it can be quite humanizing and, and to me, very satisfying. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I couldn't agree more with that um, need almost for the, the bad history. I remember having a, a chat a long time ago with uh, Hugh Lemmy, who does the Bad Gays podcast and the, and the book as well. And yes. he, he says, he's, you know, he's very, that's his whole philosophy is a very similar thing that it's so important to not only know the history of the, the kind of the quote unquote good gays, um, yes. because you've got to expect that moral messiness and that diversity in uh, morality for everybody. And, and so also it's strange though, to think about uh, equality being acknowledgement of the, the bad bits and that's <laughs> often last to come. Mm. Yes, I totally agree. And, you know, there was such a, a strong response to when Gillian Flynn wrote the Gone Girl, you know, you mm-hmm. have this t- really just awful, <laughs> both narrators <laughs> of Amy. <laughs> terrible, <laughs> terrible. But there's something so bracing about the depth of the characterization. So as both a reader and a writer, I, I really appreciate these experiences mm-hmm. because of those the, the fullness of the experience, the kind of torridness of it all. 
Yeah. And it can be very immersive. And so, yeah, it seems like it would be antithetical to mm-hmm. want to create a queer crime story in which all the characters are, are quite, <laughs> quite haunted and really difficult and really terrible. But, you know, this is, this is our little world that we've, we've chosen to write into. And so yeah. I think that there is, it's incumbent on me as a writer to really take it as far as I can go. Yeah, no, I, I, I love that. I love that. I know you've also said um, in the past about why it's so important that art reflects who we are and who we want to be. And when we're talking about crime, that's almost funny in a lot of ways, because as you say, we're not robbing banks, or at least, I mean, if, if you are, don't tell me, keep it, keep that quiet. Um, <laughs> but it's so intrinsic to crime because we're talking about the, the whodunit, the, the who killed Professor Plum in the study with the, with the candlestick. That's why we're there. It's why we're reading, or at least it's why we picked it up to begin with. It might not be why we're reading by the end, I suppose, for a lot of, for a lot of books. Um, and I've, I've heard crime writers talk a lot about this search for, for truth, and they're not talking about the whodunit. That's not what they're talking about. I think they're making a reference most likely broadly to the genre, to noir, to where it's headed. Yes. Do you agree with that? Do you think that crime writers are looking for, for truth? And what does that mean, do you think? Oh, absolutely. And again, I, I think we're in a remarkable place right now of evolution where we have more voices in crime fiction. Mm. We're decolonizing crime fiction where what's actually occurring is so beautiful because subtext becomes text. And in so many ways, we get a moment to ask, what is crime? You know, is it, yes, of course, poor Professor Plum who bit it in the library because of some perpetrator with the candlestick. Yes, that's, that's horrible, actually. And in fact, you know, I think really there's so much more to explore about the fascination with, with crime and murder in general, because it is, of course, the greatest loss that cannot be reversed. Mm. I do think you're absolutely spot on, and I agree, that it's a moment of inquiry as to, is inequality a crime? You know, is mm-hmm. violence, of course, a crime. Racism is a crime. Transphobia is a crime. So you have these, this sort of matryoshka doll of, of questions about crime itself, power and powerlessness, voicelessness, lack of agency, you know, some families with dynastic wealth versus, you know, the scrappy, you know, sleuth or whatever it might be. You, you have these tremendous opportunities, all within a gripping, Pacey story, because that's really also very important too. You know, I think State of the Nation polemics have enriched the books that I love the most. And I think they're there from the very beginning. And I know there's some spirited debate around it, but even in the early stories of Hammett and Chandler and Spillane, you know, you have crooked cops on the take and, you know, people that are judges of looking the other way you have mobsters and all of that but i do think it's a moment of really getting to reframe questions of institutional power and Mm -hmm. authority and i we i think you know the crime writers of color and a group started by walter mosley and kelly garrett in the u.s for really um really championing this beautiful work you know because when you love genre you're a fan. You love it. You want to read books that 
yeah, you know, that really scratch that itch or tick the box. Mm-hmm. But then you get all this this just incredible enrichment within a great within a great mystery or a great noir, which sometimes doesn't even include mystery at all. You know, so it's great to see all the different subgenres at work too. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really good to hear. I think it was um Megan Abbott who also um a few years ago, I'm not sure exactly when, but she gave the Noirich lecture as well. Um, and she said, as with everything in literature, something is present before it's quite articulated. And then someone identifies it, gives it a name, and the unconscious suddenly becomes conscious. And that's, 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 what, you're, that's what you're getting at. And as a big crime reader, as well as a crime writer, it's interesting to hear that there are these these changes coming in, there's this evolution in, in crime as, as there should be in kind of all literature. Um, but crime is distinct because it has all these tropes. It has the things that we know are going to be there, that the private eye it might be, or the, um, the urban setting is another kind of big one. And do you think that those tropes are something that it's important to have and to grow within? You know, why did you do that rather than say, um, smash them, be done with them and kind of start over? What's what's the advantage or not, if you yeah. say? Absolutely. And I see writers taking, you know, varied approaches with it in terms of setting a mystery in a, kind of, a moon of a moon, <laughs> you know, so it's almost like a speculative mystery. I think really beautiful things are happening on the edges and in the interstices, of course. For me, tropes are, are a language that we speak. You know, they're almost like shorthand or signposts that we can speak to one another. And so in my case, the lone wolf, you know, the adult uh, (laughs) braggadocio swaggering lone wolf. I love that trope. I absolutely adore it. And of course, I bristle against it. And I resist the sexism of the early incarnations of that trope. But I still... I love it. You know, the chain smoking kind of (laughs) whiskey drinking. So I took all of the things that I think are really fascinating and generative about that trope, because really when you strip it down to its essence, it's about alienation and it's about theater and performance and how when you feel absolute terror inside and you feel extremely lonely that you push people away and you act like a jerk. (laughs) And, you know, and I get that. And I think that's really something extraordinary to honor. And Mm -hmm. the world can be such a septic world. So you got, you know, your trench coat and your hat and the rain and the mean streets. I took all of that and I I imported it into a tatted up nun, (laughs) you know, (laughs) 33 years old who makes a countercultural move to move from this world of, being this, you know, I, a sort of an icon in her own head, being this mm-hmm. post, you know, band, a guitar teacher who spends all of her money on tattoos and makes that move to move from that life to a, a somewhat monastic life as a progressive but Catholic nun in an, in an order in New Orleans and holds that space of being both an insider and an outsider mm-hmm. and of the world, but completely outside the world. And I think they're really interesting societal instruments to explore, you know, for so many reasons, because I think alienation and connection, the need for human connection, 
is something that is really important for me to explore in storytelling. So that trope was perfect to really examine and then kind of subvert, but also honor. And I think that for a variety of writers, that's a great little bit of a dare, almost like sitting down to try to write a sonnet and write something new within the familiar. Yeah. Yeah. Within the familiar. I like that. I like that. It's crime more than uh, other kinds of fiction. It, uh, there's some really normal things about it, but then normally the actual plot is, I would hope, for the most part, quite far from the writer's life for their own sake, very much so. Um, but I, I, am I right in thinking that you, um, growing up, that you had experience at the Catholic Church and things like that? You did. So how was that to, to almost bridge your worlds through uh, fiction? How did you find that process? Extremely healing. And very, very reparative. And I'm a huge advocate for art in general as a very reparative and grounding experience, but also, again, crime fiction, because it gives us these ways to explore some difficult material in a way that we have control over. Mm. So I did grow up in the Catholic Church. I you know, was baptized and confirmed and was practicing member for, for decades. Mm -hmm. And it's a huge part of my family's identity and expression. And at the same time, I felt quite othered and alienated myself, you know, for, for all the reasons that one can imagine. Um, and, but yet it's still there. It's, it's a huge part of me that I don't feel like I need or want to excise, even though I'm no longer a practicing member. And so when I, <laughs> I would have these experiences of sort of walking by these beautiful churches and looking at the stained glass and, and feeling almost anxiety. And for a number of years, I thought, I want to do something. I want to write something that does create a bridge between my past mm -hmm. and my, not only my present, but my future. And, you know, really Sister Holiday emerged in that space of being someone, <laughs> a character that could create a kind of a queer future in a sense of you can inhabit the life that you want to inhabit mm -hmm. despite the dogma or despite the fidelity to some kind of a doctrine. And so she's, you know, not, she's, of course, this is fiction. And so she is out an out queer person and then still does take this provisional vow. Mm -hmm. so that's not exactly how it works. <laughs> <laughs> You mean that's not your plan for the future? <laughs> I know in other, certainly other denominations of spirituality, faith, and religion, you can have you can have a spouse, and you know, but not in this particular mm -hmm. denomination, which is what was really important for me to use as material. But I also wanted to explore what sexual identity could mean within a celibate person, and how what would even, you know, these notions mean for us as queer people and just people, humans in general. So I do find after I do a reading or book signing, a lot of people will come up to me and say, I'm also a lapsed Catholic. <laughs> and there's something about the guilt that doesn't quite leave. But, you know, it is on the holidays on you know, midnight mass or Easter or certain times of year, there's just like almost this desire for kind of 
exhale or peacefulness. Mm -hmm. That's not necessarily like a rejoining, but just a sense of peace. And I that even in the, the actual chaos <laughs> of scorched grace, I, I try to create a world where this dialectic exists, where you can be anything you actually want to be. Mm. You do, you know, you're not hurting other people. <laughs> and that's also part of it too. And yes, she's a character that I've built, but you know, she, she actually, I've, Whenever now I, and I've mentioned this, I think at Newarch, whenever I walk by a church now, I'm like, I wonder what Sister Holiday is up to inside, <laughs> you know, getting up to rather than having an actual panic attack. <laughs> and that is progress. Highly preferable. <laughs> Definitely. Much easier to get on with the day, I imagine, <laughs> at that point. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it definitely comes across in Scorched Grace. It's, it's filled with conflict the whole book is filled with conflict but never does the conflict feel like she's uh, conflicting with her faith which which is interesting it's really solid um and it's a bit of an anchor for her but also as a reader it's definitely an anchor um when you've got this lone wolf character this very classic noir character in that way and she's defiant and she's she's, she's snarky and she's edgy um and so you could worry as with other protagonists that there's kind of a, an, an insecurity or an instability lying deep down and it, and there are elements, but not to do with her faith. And I, and I, I liked that. I've not seen that before. And I think that's the whole point is trying to write what we haven't seen and what we'd like to see and try to build something. Um, so yeah, absolutely. But the actual thing from the, from the whole book that um, struck me the most was the number of sentences about how sweaty everybody is all the time in, in New Orleans and how hot it is. And I have a, a friend who studied there for a year and it, it checks out. I <laughs> can't confirm it checks out. Um, and, and kind of jokes aside, it's, it's wonderful because the city's alive. It's completely alive. It's almost a, a character in, in the book. And even though I do think that it feels very special and very tailored to Scorch Grace. The idea of a sissy being alive and being a character, that is another crime trope. That's classic in, in lots of crime. Why, why cities? Why do crime writers love the city? What is it? What's so captivating there? I think it's the, well, thank you so much for your beautiful read on that. I appreciate <laughs> that. And thanks to your friend as well. <laughs> yeah, I think Generally, I'll speak for me, and then also what I love about reading cities and specific sense of place in crime fiction mm -hmm. is that it's contextual. Yeah. So, so much of crime fiction is about context and causality, and so when the city or the the urban setting itself is part is within your crosshairs, you know, becomes something else to watch, something else to scan. And gives you crucial information, you know, about the mentality and mindset of each character and can really act as a Rorschach test. So some characters complain about the heat mercilessly and some, you know, like Revo, and then some are just, they, they kind of roll with it. And so mm -hmm. if you do ways to tease out of different aspects of character. And also, I just love, I love feeling and mood in works, you know, the 
when you can walk away from a Scandinavian noir and just feel bracing cold and the kind of clenching of muscles. Yeah. And I think that's a real success. And so I, I wanted to strive for similar dizzying kind of heat stroke <laughs> fever dream <laughs> within the world of this book. Cause really the meta narrative is about burning and incineration and fires left unchecked that, yeah. that, will devour everything in their path. And so <laughs> with the heat it, being a character, the city itself, you know, the quirky characters of the city and the heat being almost one and the same, but then also the diversity because cities are not monoliths. You know, you have characters like Prince Dempsey living in a trailer, mm -hmm. an old hazardous FEMA trailer, mm -hmm. um, and then other people living in great wealth and lushness. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I like the um, there's something lovely about being a writer, and you'll have your your points you want to make, your questions you want to raise, but then that kind of intrinsic love for the details of the line, for the delicateness, for the the construction of of a real vibe, for lack of a an aesthetic, perhaps is a more accurate word. And I and I wonder as well with is there art in however we want to define it is there art in every crime book does there need to be art what's that difference between uh, a book or a, a book of fiction or a book of crime and a book of art where do they overlap what what is the relationship between trying to tell a story and trying to kind of create a piece of art what does that mean you're welcome to get as academic with that one as you like because those are some big big terms in there but I'm just curious what you would say I love it you know I, I I'll start with the <laughs> The little kid version of myself reading a book in a tree, <laughs> which is whatever it is, whatever aesthetic is chosen, whatever telos of the project, it's, mm -hmm. does it give you a, does it imp almost implant a dream in your mind and something that can, you can escape into or feel a sense of wonder about mm -hmm. wondering about it or creates wonder in you. And so for me, even just the, the sleekest, slickest page turner with that is just total plot points mm. and no <laughs> character, no dexterous line work, nothing at all, but just like he picked up the gun and he shot the gun and the gun was shot you know, or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. If it can open a new door that wasn't there before, then it's achieved, you know, and in my mind, there is a real artistry to joining things together so quickly that you're racing through it. Um, but I do think, yeah, <laughs> it's a funny, it's a funny thing. Cause like, I, I don't know about you, but like it, my taste really varies very wildly. Mm. <laughs> I can, I love all sorts. I love everything, you know, I love, uh, very oblique odes to nothingness and like, um, you know, very intensely philosophically driven pieces. And then also, mm -hmm. you know, really plot driven, yeah. just bangers because <laughs> I think it's really fun to see the variety and depends on the, on the day too. Yeah. <laughs> no, I I, I hope that kind of <laughs> addresses the question, but I think 
I think that's the other beautiful promise of crime fiction is that you can take it wherever you want to take it. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I don't think there is one answer to to what is art. I think it's maybe one of the most uh, intriguing yet horrible questions. What to- do you I want to know what you think. <laughs> what is it? How would you define it? Or, or even not necessarily define it, but I guess describe it. How would I describe art? Oof. <laughs> an interesting one. Outside of um, outside of my my work in literature, uh, there's a lovely project that happens with some old friends where we uh, review art with quotations uh, in any form that we can find. The wackier, the better. And uh, the idea of the reviews isn't to say, is it good? Is it bad? The idea of those reviews is to say, how did you feel? Uh, what did it bring to mind? All of this kind of thing. And I think perhaps that is, if I have an answer, if I have a review that I would write, then I would probably qualify that thing as art. I think art can be really god awfully bad, uh, and I can still gain something. Even if that is just a good laugh, I can gain something from it. And sometimes what I'm looking for is a good laugh. So uh, yeah. I may go for the <laughs> for the bad things. That's those times. Um, but it's a big question, and I like that art doesn't have to be very big all the time. It can be very, very small. Absolutely. I love that, too. That's yeah. so great. Yeah. Let's look for wonder. Let's look for yes. and open doors and all those things. Um, to take a slight detour, um, crime books have a lot of violence. There's a lot of violence yeah. in them. That takes different forms depending on um, what kind of crime we're dealing with. But in these books where there's lots of social commentary, you know, we've talked about the we've spoken about the evolution of the, the genre and how we're seeing more kind of intersectionality come into it. And these are these these are big social commentaries. These are big driving forces. How do you balance that with violence? Those are quite opposing things sometimes. Does one speak to another? How does a writer look to balance those things when they're constructing their narrative? Well, that's a wonderful question. And it's a really important one too. And this answer, of course, is from a person who, when I do see any kind of roadkill, I look at it through my fingers <laughs> and I cry and I would give a, a funeral to every little deer or bunny that I see <laughs> perished. Um, and yet here I am writing somewhat grisly stories of, of loss and death and violence. Mm-hmm. I... I, again, not to be, you know, yet too academic, but I think rationale is, is important. And so mm-hmm. do look at the both personal and societal value of tragedy, you know, as described mm-hmm. by folks like Aristotle and Julia Kristeva, uh, who wrote the, a really wonderful treatise called The uh, power of horror and tales of the abject and how that there is a real benefit to exploring, you know, some of this, the hardest stuff in life. And sometimes violence will narrativize and vivify the hardest stuff of life. Cause then, it, you know, you can move through it. You can close the book and you can walk away. And sometimes, you know, you don't want images stuck in your mind. Mm-hmm. But I think that as a writer, it's for me, it's not about gore. It's not about bloodshed necessarily. It's about that feeling of, you know, the breaking or the cleaving or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. You almost this sense of relief. Mm-hmm. And so 
the violence that I have read in crime fiction that has felt particularly transformative is, you know, in the works of Cormac McCarthy, Jim Thompson, uh, to a small degree, Patricia Highsmith, and, and really the contemporary writer that I think is a real artist of what I would call stylized or aestheticized violence is S.A. Cosby. So Razor Blade Tears, All the Sinners Bleed, Blacktop Wasteland, you know, remarkable um, tales, you know, All the Sinners Bleed, the tale of a, a black sheriff mm-hmm. who's on the hunt for a serial killer. But then you have these extraordinary social comments about racism and white supremacy. And the violence, again, gives you this space to release to have catharsis. And I think catharsis is very important. Move it through the body, you know, get this kind of turbid energy out. Mm-hmm. And so I do that, you know, and I feel everything my characters feel. So in the sequel to Scorched Grace, there's actually quite a lot of violence and it was hard to write, but I, I tried to hold the space of an authentic experience. So you know, whether it's the person getting hit in the face or the person doing the hitting, it's, you know, again, we're capable of all these articulations with our bodies. And so to write through it is an interesting exercise, but one I never take lightly ever. And I try to do responsibly in that sense of always calibrating between what is too much and what is not enough to create an authentic narrative moment. Mm. But I do think that it's something that different characters, you know, really have wildly different takes on. And people like horror, you know, for certain reasons, but I think that it it can communicate in a similar way where it can give you that kind of almost like, (laughs) what's it called when you take the when you go into the ocean on a f- most freezing day in New Year's Eve, <laughs> you survive it, you know, <laughs> euphoric. <laughs> yes, euphoric. <laughs> so if you, or, you know, on the roller coaster mm-hmm. and you feel your insides, your viscera, like <laughs> yeah. moving around the body. And I think we can do that in art too. And mm-hmm. it's more than just a jump scare. It actually can be almost reparative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like it's almost something not, um, I don't know if palpable is the word, but something you can't quite put into words. It's just the body needs occasionally. I, yeah. I like that. Yeah. And we, so much of our life is like this, right? Mm. For our listeners, I'm just going <laughs> to my head, basically. <laughs> when you're writing, you're just, or, you know, if you look or you stand at any street corner and just look and you'll just see people staring at a phone. Mm-hmm. No so in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And then take a moment of, of a, a fight, a fight scene that can be very unusual and not a cliche, mm. but can give you just a more full and three-dimensional experience of what a character is actually having to go through. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think that's, I think that's really true. I, there's an assumption there as well of interaction with uh, the reader, if it's a book or I suppose the audience, if it's, uh, a film or, you know, in a kind of noir in another form. Um, the, the piece itself, the eye itself, excuse the pun, is not Bible, um, but it's kind of, it's giving you that that entry to kind of do what you want and interact how how you want. Rather than telling you, it's just going to give you some things and you see what you want to do with them. Yes. Yeah, that's important. Mm. Yeah. Um, 
The other thing is, you've, you've mentioned it a couple of times when we were talking just before I hit record. So sorry, listeners, but you uh, are also a poet. You have written a lot of poetry before the um, Sister Holiday series. And I wonder how you have found, perhaps for this, I'll bring it back to um, queerness and writing queerness and exploring otherness, which I think links to that alienation. There's lots of themes here. What's the difference between what you found in writing the poetry and what you found in writing crime fiction? What are the differences and what those forms allow you to bring to the table, what they've allowed you to explore? Oh, definitely. I guess I treat it like different brush strokes that a painter might need. You know, mm-hmm. some, are thin, some are thick, some oh, create light or hold light and some hold shadow. And I think writing across different forms and genres has given me a sense to explore. Some of the poems that I write are just these little vignettes or moments in life. And even as small as, you, as a, you know, tiny, like a um, little makeup brush or something like that, where you're, you know, kind of using that. And then, of course, the prose is just a larger scale and a larger scope that encompasses more causality and more, more thinking about the inner workings of a piece of art. So then thinking through scenarios, thinking through character arcs, through queer storylines in ways that are very satisfying. So I feel like I'll always write both. And I'm, and of course, the other day I was just scheming about which, you know, what new poetry book I want to create <laughs> because oh. they, <laughs> they, we're always just reinventing what that means for ourselves. And for me, what I love about a poem is just the, the stopping of the world for a moment yeah. where you just almost have to, to stop and just yeah. absorb and be amazed or feel that, whatever it is, this incredible eureka moment. And then with, with the fiction, it's this propulsion and almost wanting to desperately move through it. Mm. So like there's the one that gives you pause and then there's the one that thrusts you forward. Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. That's really wonderful. I, I agree. I mean, I, I can't say I'm a big fiction writer myself, but I'm a fiction reader and a, and a definitely a big poetry fan. And uh, I completely agree with the holding of the moment, the absorption of the moment. And yeah. the fiction kind of releasing, releasing, <laughs> letting it, letting it run, letting it run amok. Hopefully, <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> we hope. We hope. And listen, there we Yeah, that's that's wonderful. Thank you. And um, and you've mentioned a couple. Just to kind of wrap up, you've mentioned more than a couple actually um, writers and books that have been inspirations for you that obviously the ones that that come to mind when we're talking about these things and the evolution of noir and crime generally. Um, But for if there's a writer listening, so there's a writer listening who's a a crime writer, they're wanting to get into it, but they are angling to try to utilize the genre to uh, explore something different or move it in a direction they want to, or really make it their own in whatever that looks like to them. Um, You've mentioned Walter Mosley and others, but who would be your your top recommendations for writers, for books, even places to be looking for inspirations? Oh, well, definitely the Noirich Festival. <laughs> is the, perfect, <laughs> the perfect crime writing festival, which is, is true, is, lives up to its name in a million percent 
uh, beyond that. So for me, I would say if you're if you're new to the the idea of crime writing, or let's just say hypothetically you've, you're from a poetry background and you're interested in, in exploring and opening up the aperture a little bit, I would of course strongly recommend the the work by Raymond Chandler, like The Long Goodbye, The Big Sleep, For Farewell My Lovely. He's he's a, he's a poet in so many ways, and some folks disagree with the fact that he is hard-boiled because his language is so poetic. I, of course, strongly believe that he's hard-boiled because of the voice and character and the grit of the character and also the self-effacement, starting with him. And, of course, keeping in mind that it's difficult material, it's highly problematized, you will, you will have your fair share uh, heaps of sexism, racism, homophobia, and to keep that in mind as you read that mm-hmm. you know these work when these works were written, who they were written by, and still I think there's tremendous tremendous value in them in their remarkable yeah. texts. And then I would say the the night the work of the '90s, which would be considered almost uh, neo hard boiled or the counterweights. Mm-hmm. So Walter Mosley, Sue Grafton, uh, Sarah Paretsky. And then in noir, of course, James M. Cain, uh, Elliot Chase, and modern writers who I think are writing glorious noir tales are, it's a, <laughs> one of the funniest books that I've read in the past decade, My Sister, the Serial Killer by, <laughs> by Oyunkin Braithwaite. And it is a Leak novel, you know, it you can read it in. I love I love noir novels that are around that two hundred page or mm. mark in terms of, you know, just kind of flying through it. Yeah. And my sister, the serial killer, is so iconoclastic. It is so funny, and yet it and in dark and hard, and yet it holds this beautiful ode to family and the bond between siblings it all in this just real ripper of of a pacey beautiful read (laughs) and and then i'll i'll flag one more book that i think straddles the lines and really embodies genre blending and i mentioned this in the noir the noir lecture is a book called white horse by uh an indigenous native american writer named erica t worth and it's a mystery but it's also what is considered new wave horror. <laughs> but it's really noir, as it has some noir signatures as well, in the sense that you just do not know who to trust. It's a very disorienting world. The the boundaries are quite porous, and it's really an interesting inhabitation of the mystery space. And so I think there's it's just such an exciting time to be a crime fiction reader and writer. And just those are just a few of the the recommendations I have. And if anyone ever wants to get in touch with me mm-hmm. as well, you know, I'm, I'm always, I love chatting about this stuff. So if further recommendations or reading lists, I'd always love to talk about that. Yeah. Well, I've been very grateful to get to sit down and chat about this, this stuff. Um, it's fascinating how it's evolving what we can do with talking about alienation, turning these, you know, seemingly maybe not very nice on the surface things into explorations and into um, healing and into catharsis. I think it's a really beautiful way to to use writing, which is what it's all about. 
uh, or it's about, you know, doing a slasher and everyone has a great read and, uh, and we're done. Whatever it is we're doing. Or both. <laughs> or both. Gosh, if you can do both, get in touch. <laughs> We'd like to hear about it. Amazing. Well, thank you, Margot. I really appreciate that. Um, and we'll pull to a close there. Thank you so much. This has been an absolute joy. A big thank you to Margot Dwayi and Ellie for their time and to you for listening. If you have any questions or you want to get in touch, you can find us at Writers Centre on Twitter and Instagram. We're on Facebook and you can sign up to the NCW newsletter at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. As a UK registered charity, we rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible. You can make a donation over on our website by going to the Support Us page. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please do consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a rating and a review, because this helps other writers to find us. Thanks again. Keep writing, and I'll catch you on the next episode. <laughs>